Hi, I'm Matthew Workman from Medford, Oregon. I'm Katie from Muncie, Indiana. Hi, I'm Benjamin Hart from Brooklyn, New York. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is film director Ryan Johnson. Before we get to the interview, let's hear a bit of the trailer for his new film, a con man comedy called The Brothers Blue. How'd you find me? It's actually pretty simple. We're brothers. And I've come to the conclusion that you don't want out. You think you do, but you don't. Where are we going? New Jersey. Let me grab my coat. This will be the last one. I'll never ask you to do another con again. The largest private residence on the eastern seaboard, home of our final mark. Penelope Stamp lived at home her whole life. So what kind of stuff do you do? I collect hobbies. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program uh, is film director Ryan Johnson. His 2005-2006 uh, feature, Brick was uh, the culmination of 10 years of post-film school effort and uh, one of the more critically acclaimed and occasionally critically reviled films of that year. Uh, noir set in uh, the world of a suburban Los Angeles high school. Um, his newest film is called The Brothers Bloom. It's a sort of fantastical con artist tale with a heart of gold. <laughs> Ryan Johnson, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. I had a hard time saying the phrase heart of gold I after it occurred it. to me in my mind. I, I could hear the little gap between <laughs> it formulating in your brain, your lips saying no, and then your brain pushing it through anyway. <laughs> I could feel your lips saying, well, you're kidding, right? We're going to, yeah, we said it. We just said uh, it. we go. Um, it seems like you're, um, you're of that generation, the first generation that grew up with enough consumer video equipment to take up the idea of being a filmmaker as a kid and, and actually really do something with it. Um, but when did you start making videos? Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if really by do, by really do something with it you mean waste a lot of time and <laughs> then absolutely no my I, I i actually i did i started making movies when i was um uh just a kid really i mean my dad brought home like one of the first video cameras on our block and this was um this was back before camcorders this was when it was a video camera and you had to hook it into the vcr and carry the vcr around with you if you wanted to move you know <laughs> around the house a little bit so um, so I started with that, and then you know, in high school, I figured out you could get out of writing papers about about Shakespeare if you made a movie about Shakespeare. And so my friends and I, you know, that's what we would do, and and that's how we would entertain ourselves. And um, on weekends, we would all get together and, and make a movie. You Did know? you actually make a movie about Shakespeare? Oh God, no! We had multiple. Are you kidding? That's... What what plays did you? We did uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. We did Hamlet. We did Macbeth. We did when we got to the point where we were doing these super elaborate. First of all, it was they were filled with in jokes that only me and my friends would get. And we got to the point where we were doing these super elaborate like 
meta like charlie kaufman-esque like <laughs> opus where basically at some point we actually filmed like one of us like walking down to the like quitting the the play quitting like the the film <laughs> walking down to the school and walking into the classroom and then that person like would w- walk in the classroom live and like try and turn off the vcr and then we you know so we we got really stupid and elaborate with it but um but no that's how we avoided talking to girls in high school that's, that's how we did it <laughs> was that the path to a to a good grade in English class that's complicated behind the scenes? No. English teachers typically, <laughs> high school English teachers typically have a more traditional uh, have a more traditional opinion of how narrative should function. Uh, sort of, yeah, but that, on the other hand, they were kind of just so confused, I think, that we, we got away with quite a bit. But no, my grades were awful in high school because I was making movies all the time, and that actually that I had a really hard time getting into getting into film school because uh, of that. You know? I went down to uh, Newport Beach to see a uh, screening of the film Film, uh, at the Newport Beach Film Festival. Newport Beach is this uh, coastal da- coastal town in Orange County, south of Los Angeles. And um, I, I guess I had forgotten that you were from Orange County. What, what kind of Orange County is such a particular place? Like it's such a yeah, it, it's such a it's such an odd place. Um, what was your relationship like uh, to being from Orange County when you were a teenager? Well, I went to, I grew up kind of in Colorado. I went to grade school in Colorado, and then we moved to Orange County, um, to San Clemente, when I was um, in junior high. And San Clemente is on the very southern tip of Orange County. Um, and San Clemente has, it's Orange County, but it's, it's, it's very different from Newport Beach. San Clemente is much more of a laid back, like little beach town type vibe. And Newport Beach, I think, is more what people traditionally think of when they think of Orange County. But my mom now lives in Laguna Niguel and has for many years, which is very hardcore Orange County. And I actually, I mean, I, I think that there tends to be kind of a, a, a real snobbery of a, that exists in Los Angeles about Orange County um, and uh, a real prejudice, kind of the way that, you know, people who don't live in the South feel about the South to a certain extent, you know, even if they've never really been there. And I'm, I'm actually really grateful that I grew up there and then my mom lives there now and I go down and I you know I see her friends and um and I can see that you know it's it's uh like most other things in life you know on the surface all the clichés exist down there but there's also people living you know really rich beautiful lives and there's wonderful stuff going on down there and it's there's a lot more than than what's on the surface, I guess. So, so I like Orange County a lot, actually. You know, so your movies have uh, one of these hallmarks of uh, movies of people who grew up in the home video era, which is they f- they feel incredibly informed about past film, hmm. like a, a, astonishingly informed. Um, and I wonder if you were a film nerd in addition to being a making films nerd by the time you were a teenager or, or whether that was like a, a film school thing no yeah i was being because my family are all film buffs they're not in the film industry my my dad and my uncles my grandfather they're all in the home building industry but they all loved movies and so you know my grandfather you know introduced me to fellini movies and showed me la strada and you know Amarcord and and my dad um, was a big Scorsese fan, so he was you know showing me Raging Bull very early on, and um, so no, I but it really was film school though where I completely kind of super saturated my brain with all these things. It's strange though because I um, I think maybe there's sometimes the misperception that this is you know that when you see echoes of lots of movies in a movie 
that it was created like that consciously or that it was stitched together as some sort of artificial patchwork. It seems inconceivable, the idea of consciously saying, oh, okay, I'll take this from this and this from this and this from that. You, you know, the, the act of creating this stuff is a very organic and very unconscious type thing, you know, and then... I, th I think it may just be a matter of you are what you eat to a certain extent, you know. Um, but I don't know if it's a generational thing, because I, I was going to say, when in film school, I carried around um, that book, Scorsese on Scorsese, you know, and just read that constantly. And all he talks about in that are the other movies that it's informed him, as well as his, his experiences in life. So, um, so I don't know. I don't know. Let's talk a little bit about Brick, because Brick is, uh, Brick is a, I, I, for one thing, I thought it was a really remarkable film, but um, it, one of the things that's most interesting about it is that it, um, it is so squarely in the noir genre, mm. it is so specifically a genre film, but it is also so completely odd and personal. <laughs> Yeah. Um, why did you cr create that film and, you know, drag it around for the five years that it took uh, for somebody to give you money to make it? Well, I mean, it, it, uh, it, 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 I mean, it kind of started with uh, the discovering Dashiell Hammett's novels and on just on kind of a um, very formal level. That was that was kind of the thing that got me going was the world he created in those books. But what really got it going I mean, for the personal angle of it for me um, was for some reason, uh, again, the world of those books and the world of detective fiction uh, connected really solidly with the kind of, I think to a certain extent, we all tend to turn our high school, our adolescent memories into mythology in our minds and tend to blow them up to something slightly bigger than life in the back of our heads. And for me, for whatever reason, um, the, the elemental things that are make up detective fiction clicked like two Legos coming together with the, the memories I had of, of, of that time. And this feeling that this kind of hostile world and this feeling that you're a detective kind of trying to figure out this weird mystery and this very stratified social social dynamic and the appeal of somebody who could, you know, smash through that in order to get what he wanted, you know, um, so that it, it it resonated on a very deep level, and I ended up being able to just plug a lot of um, these weird emotional memories of high school and adolescence into you know into this very weird detective story, I guess. Pin, pin, the pin, the pin, yeah. Pin's kind of a local spook store, you know the kingpin. I've heard it. Same thing. It's supposed to be old, like 26. Lives in town. Dope runner, right? Big time. See, the pin pipes it from the lowest scrapper to Brad Bramish himself. Maybe. I mean, ask any dope right where the junk sprang, and they'll say they scraped it off that, who scored it off this, who bought it off so and after four or five connections, the list always ends with the pin. But I bet you you got every rat in town together and said, show your hands if any of them actually seen the pin, and you get a crowd of full pockets. I think the pin's just a tail to take whatever heat. Mm. But what's first? Show of hands. It's almost more stylized than the genre mm -hmm. ordinarily is. Like the stylization is um, uh, is at the same time um, played very straight and almost absurd. Yeah. Um, why did you make that choice? I guess the most utilitarian reason was that it was really important to me to establish from the very beginning of the whole thing that we were not in a teenage world, you know, real teenage world, that this wasn't about 
on one level that this wasn't about real teenage violence, but on the other level that, that we were operating in a high, very heightened reality to, for a very specific purpose, you know. Um, and so to that end, that's where the language element of it, which obviously teenagers don't talk like that, but that's, you know, um, hopefully the first time you hear something come out of someone's lips, you have to kind of reevaluate where we are here, especially because it, the surroundings were very real. You know, we're just... Uh, you know, locker cages in a high school, you know, and we have a certain set of expectations about what a movie like that is once we see those visual cues. So at the same time, though, te- teenagers do. I mean, they don't talk like the teenagers yeah. in your movie, but I think that idea of teenagers creating their own world was absolutely, and it, it, it that was another thing that clicked together between high, the world of high school and the world of this detective fiction. They they both create this weird slang, and they both do it for exactly the same reason, which is so the grown-ups won't know what they're talking about or what they're doing. I mean, that's the criminal patter was precisely that, so the cops won't you know be able to follow and. You know, and that's where it happens with the teen. So it, it, it was just another one of those things that just slid together nicely. I thought we had orange juice, Brendan. I'm sorry. How about some tang? No, that's more like soda, isn't it? Water's fine, ma'am. Thanks. Oh, wait a minute. We have apple juice here if you'd like that. Or we've got milk, but you're having that on your cornflakes. Apple juice sounds terrific. It's country style. That's perfect. And I'll even give it to you in a little country glass. How about that? Okay, well, I'm going to go do something in the other room. So, how about we take another snap at hearing your tale? I don't know, it starts out same as before. This floor ain't carpeted. You're cool, dog. Your muscles seem plenty cool putting his fist in my head. Want him out. I thought Brick was really funny, Mm. Um, and I was impressed by the way that um, the funniness, never to me at least, um, undercut the reality or, you know, hyper reality or whatever it was, or undercut the, um, emotions so that w- right. while you're going through this, this really huge emotionally scaled thing, you know, that sort of mirrors both the noir and the adolescence in general, right? like you could have, the jokes in the film could have been the kind that, uh, you know, contrast with that and undercut it. Right, right, right. Was that a choice that you made uh, consciously not to, uh, not to ever spoof or mock? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think that was so elemental, it didn't even feel like a choice to me. I mean, it was, you know... um, it was, I think, probably just a, a byproduct of, you know, first and foremost, my priority with, you know, both Brick and Bloom and hopefully anything I create is, is to is to be honest, you know. In, in a weird way, the more weird and bizarre you're being and the farther you're pushing the material, the more honest you have to be, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's... It, that ends up being, and so the the humor that arises, you know, um, from it hopefully comes organically from the situations, you know. Um, and I agree. I think I think I tend to think laugh at Brick a lot more than <laughs> most people who watch it. I think you know. I think it's really funny. But I also think that you know, um, you know, there's a lot of movies that that seem very serious. That uh, like Barton Fink, for example, I think is hilarious. You know, or I think I think that. Then that's my favorite kind of humor, the humor that isn't, you know, it's not like it's jokes that are peppered in there. It's it's comes directly from the situations, you know. 
It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. In just a minute, more with director Ryan Johnson. His new movie, The Brothers Bloom, opens this week in New York and Los Angeles and over the next couple of weeks across the country. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey guys, Jesse here. The 2009 Maximum Fund Drive is drawing to a close. I think as I record this, there's about 36 hours left. And uh, so I decided I wanted to take this break to thank the more than 500, yeah, more than 500 people who donated to support MaximumFund.org and pledged to donate once a month into the future. Besides them, of course, I also want to thank all the folks who've been donating uh, over the years to support this endeavor. I'm really proud to make something that uh, people care enough about to uh, give me support that they don't have to give me. Um, hopefully your pledge dollars will, will show up as uh, cool new guests and uh, new opportunities for the show. Um, we have some really specific plans that um, uh, you'll see unfold over the next few months. And... Uh, I really appreciate all your support. Of course, if you haven't donated already, uh, The Sound of Young America isn't just supported by your donations during the Maximum Fund Drive. So you can always visit MaximumFund.org slash donate and pledge to give uh, $2, $5, $10, $20 a month, however much you can spare uh, to support this show. So anyway, thank you very much, everybody. I, I really appreciate it. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Let's get back to my interview with Brothers Bloom director Ryan Johnson. Your new movie, uh, The Brothers Bloom, is uh, a con man movie about uh, two brothers who grow up together, mm -hmm. essentially running cons, with one as the front, um, played by Adrian Brody, and one played by Mark Ruffalo as sort of the uh, uh, the brains or the schemer. Right. Um, why did you want to do a con man movie? Well, it's weird. The con man genre is something that seems like, you know, if you're a film lover, you tend to have a special place for, a special affection for. And I, you know, I always did. And so, I mean, the fundamental start of this thing, like years and years ago, was just the notion of doing a con man movie. But but what really hooked me into it and, and you know, the personal element of it that actually got me going on it was, was the idea of instead of doing a procedural thing about the act of conning and instead of making it about the plot... Um, the idea of, first of all, doing a character-based con man movie, which um, is tricky because it's a genre where the audience is trained to distance themselves from the characters. Um, and in know. fact, I, you know, even in, even in watching your film, even early on, I, I, found, I felt that distance because I hate getting tricked. Exactly. Well, that's, what, that's where you're at at the beginning is the audience. Is it, it's all about, and that's the pleasure typically of con man movies is who's going to screw who, who over at the end of it. So, um, I mean, my notion was, okay, well, if we make that, if we explicitly make that the main character's dilemma, and that's Bloom's dilemma at the beginning of it, Adrian Brody's character, is that everything feels fake to him, you know, and everything does feel just like this constructed nonsense. And at the beginning of it, you know, it's in this incredibly stylized world where there's, you know, um, it feels so wacky and you're kind of, you know, it, it, everything feels like it's being ridden by this maniacal Stephen character and... uh and like Bloom, you should kind of feel like you want to break out of that and find something quote unquote real, you know. And and I mean, I was going to say this that kind of the second part of what really um, connected 
with me and kind of got me going on it was using using the con man story as kind of a, a more um, fable type thing in order to explore the connection between storytelling and, and real life and where those two meet um, not for storytellers not for directors or writers or anything like that but just for us as human beings living our lives um, the degree to which being able to take in all this raw information from the world outside um, and basically tell it back to yourself. And that's kind of how you form the narrative of how you think about the world. And so to a certain extent, being a good storyteller and stepping up to the plate and you know, telling your story well is a very essential part, I think, of, of you know, living a good life. So, the tale. You tell them there's a hermit in the woods. A one-eyed, steel-toothed vagabond. With blood red eyes? That's good. He stopped you coming home from school. And told me of a cave. What kind of cave? A cave of wonder. Ha! Shut up, Dave. At noon on every Sunday, there appears a ball of light, which flutters like a butterfly. A will-o'-wisp? That's right. It guides you. If you can keep up. To where the treasure's left. So where's this cave? Yeah, where? Aha! The hermit didn't say. He got this greedy, glinting look, the filthy red-eyed leech, and said he'd tell for 30 bucks. Well, that's just two bucks each. (laughs) And so that Sunday, straight from church, into the woods, Bloom led. You have this really great cast in this movie. I ended up having an argument on the way home about uh, whether Adrian Brody was uh, cooler than Johnny Depp. Yeah, <laughs> I said yes. Wow, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Pretty good, right? Yeah, you, um, you gotta get Adrian on the show. I think he'll enjoy that. <laughs> controversial choice. Controversial choice. Yeah. Now, hey, look, I, <laughs> I'm, I'll, I'll go with that. Um, so, it, tell me a, a little bit about how you uh, drew this cast to the film yeah. um, when you had made this. Uh, one uh, tiny movie that was really weird. Well, I'm I'm kind of baffled by it myself, <laughs> and I say that completely honestly. That's not like self-deprecating. I really, actually, am not sure, you know, why we are able to attract the talent. I think that they, you know, it probably it just it comes down to the script for whatever reason that the script lined up with what they each were interested in doing. You know, I know Rachel was looking to do a comedy because she was coming off of Constant Gardener and The Fountain and some really heavy stuff, and um. You know, she wanted to show what she could do in terms of being a lighter character, and I think the fact that that character Penelope also had quite a bit going on with it was really appealing to her. You know, um, and uh, you know, Mark was was Mark Ruffalo. I mean, the character Mark plays is kind of this big uh, Fellini type showman. You know, and that's very different, I think, than what Mark is typically known as playing you know he usually plays these dark intense characters on the screen brooding type yeah guys. yeah exactly like brando type you know but the funny thing is it's the reason i cast him in it is in that part is because when i sat down and met with him he's you know he's much more like his part in this movie than he is like he's not a dark intense guy he's kind of like a real he's an italian family man you know he's kind of hugging everybody and you know he's kind of got that energy so um his energy in the film reminded me a little bit of like um uh, George Clooney, that kind of right. like that kind of like lopsided grin sort of thing. He's got that, but he's also, I mean, Clooney can step in and be like the master of the universe. You know what I mean? And to just be this impenetrable cool. And what was really interesting for me is that Mark has a vulnerability that um, 
he can't eradicate you know that he can't completely put up the front and it's he has a little bit of off-centeredness he's never going to be you know um he's never going to be that guy you know and the fat and to put him in the role of that guy then was what was really interesting to me because i hoped that that kind of um you know that that soft underbelly would would give the character a little more dimension and keep you aware through the whole movie that you know at the at the base of all of this is this you know emotional core that he loves his brother and he's genuinely trying to give his brother what he wants you know there's a fourth primary character in this film uh sort of uh demolitions expert <laughs> sidekick to the brothers yeah. named bang bang mm. who doesn't speak almost at all through the course of the film and um is uh kind of goofy mm. um tell me about why this character is is was part of the film uh well i was really interested in, in trying to do a uh in trying to do a non-verbal character that was uh, as strong a character as anybody else in the movie um because i'm a big marx brothers fan and um harpo was always my favorite character and i always felt just harpo was like the strongest character and <laughs> all the i mean i love you know groucho and i love but they but harpo always shown for me and so that notion was really appealing also i um uh i, I my friend who acted in brick joseph gordon levitt he's very into clowning uh, into and he kind of has become over the past few years very close with this Russian troop of clowns um, led by. Um, I think that's happened to all of us. At some right, point at some point, we all go through that yeah. phase. It's kind of like, oh, he's going to the Russian troop of clowns phase. Yeah. Uh, Ultimate frisbees next. <laughs> we playing hacky sack in Berkeley, and then he'll become normal again. It's okay, just wait it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so but in, you know, in Russia, the clowning is is taken really seriously as an art. You know, it's very different than the pie in the face type thing here. It's kind of existential clowning over there. So he had kind of turned me on to these shows, and and these are nonverbal shows. You know, where it's an entire show where they communicate these incredibly complicated, you know, um, emotions through just uh, body language. So anyway, that 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 was kind of the the start of the whole thing, and then. Um, uh, and then I've kind of had this notion that I, I uh, you know, I really am a, I'm a fan of Asian cinema and I, I have, you know, all these Asian actors that, that I've, I, I love in the movies. And, and I figured, OK, as long as I have a role that doesn't require dialogue, which is probably going to be a pretty rare occurrence for me in my career because I love dialogue so much. Um, I made the character an Asian woman so that I could, you know, so I could work with an actor I never would have gone to work with before. And then I was lucky enough through the casting process to find Rinko Kikuchi, um, who most people know from Babel, but she actually, she started in Japan doing comedies. So her, she actually had this incredible comic timing and she was just as, as excited about doing this nonverbal performance as I was and, and seeing if we could make it work. So it kind of became this challenge that the two of us, uh, Kind of, kind of jumped on, I guess, you know. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Ryan Johnson, is the writer-director of the new film, The Brothers Bloom. His first film was the critically acclaimed high school noir, Brick. Something that somebody bought, brought up at the screening that I'm so happy they brought up because I mm. never would have noticed was the fact that you gave t uh, Tom Cruise a thank you mention in the credits. <laughs> now, 
Look, if you had had a thank you mentioned to Matt Damon or Ben Affleck or some yeah. other, there's there are certain huge stars that I could certainly see <laughs> having like th- thrown you a dinner where you right. met the producer that uh, financed the film or right. something like that. I would not necessarily pick Tom Cruise as being that person. So <laughs> tell me, uh, tell me why Tom Cruise got a thank you. It, I I actually I met with Tom Cruise because. Um, I guess he had very early in the process before we had done any casting, he had read the script and he had, you know, and so we, he, I guess he liked the script and we did the meeting and it was never like a serious thing. It was never actually going to happen that he was going to like play a role in it or something. I think it was just, you know, we sat down and met and he, um, I, I, he, you know, he, we ended up spending like three, almost four hours sitting together talking through the script and it ended up being one of the most like in, intense story sessions uh that i had had like even you know with the exception of a couple screenwriter friends of mine he really knew the thing backwards and forwards and he has dead this he has actually an incredible sense of story and so it ended up being this phenomenally useful discussion that lasted the entire afternoon um that again it was it wasn't really and you know i didn't think that he was actually ever going to be a part of it really but i I ended up just based on our discussion making some major changes to the script and so what do you what do you learn from a tom cruise oh so much what kind of knowledge did he drop on you it was well no it was specific story stuff it was stuff that wouldn't make much sense now because it was about a previous draft of the script and it was about some stuff that you know it was entirely dissecting the story and figuring out elements of it that were and weren't working you know and um but I was, you know, this was right at the height of all the supposed craziness about Tom Cruise on the internet and what have you. You know, this was at the height of all of that. And um, I don't know, man. I mean, unless, you know, unless they gassed me when I walked in and I, I don't, you know, and unless <laughs> they gave me Kool-Aid or something, I, he seemed like a, he was just a cool you guy. You just replaced him with Peter Bogdanovich yeah, dressed as Tom Cruise. I would have spotted the cravat. I would have <laughs> spotted the neckerchief. I would have known right away. No, uh... No, he was he was he was just a normal cool guy, and like I said, really generous with his time, and really especially for what's relative to the stuff he does, this was a tiny project, you know. Um, and so I was really grateful for it. So I, yeah. At what point in good. the three hours of hanging out with Tom Cruise were you able to relate to him as though he was a, an actual person? You know, it's weird. I, well, the, the, I don't know. I mean, you know, in th- meeting someone for three hours and in that context, especially when it's Tom Cruise, there's a certain part of your brain that's always every, you know, 20 seconds, this, this is Tom Cruise, you know, just in the back of your head. But at the same time, he was immediately, like, just personable. superimposes the flight suit over his body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it was, it was really, it was the opposite of that from the very start. Anything that was that, I brought to the table in the back of my own head. And I think we all would, just because we grew up watching him in movies. But he himself was just totally personable and cool, and it was, you know, um, I, I don't know, it was, it, was, it was cool to me, you know? It sounds like your next movie is, is another... Uh, pseudo genre piece that's a big departure <laughs> from your previous two yeah yeah it's very different yeah yeah yeah. it's 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 a kind of a um science fiction type thing it's uh called looper and it's um yeah it's very kind of it's kind of dark kind of violent it's very it's the exact opposite of bloom it's very different from brick and you know it's Take take a crack at something different, I guess. You know? Is this movie your your ticket to direct the Dark Knight Four? This is my shot at the big time, Thorn. I'm not gonna blow this one. This is my ticket off this little island. Next time, Cruz is gonna give it be giving you a lot more <laughs> than just story tips. Exactly. Yeah. No. Uh. No. No. This is no. If anything, I'm I'm you know. 
This is kind of a... If anything, uh, you're marginalizing yourself marginalizing further. marginalizing myself further. That's my goal, is to, at some point, just be... I'll be... I'm trying to work my way backwards to where I'm using my dad's video camera again at some point, which will, will probably happen. No, it's, you know, everybody... It, sci-fi does have a, you know, um, a real appeal. I mean, for me, I'm a huge sci-fi fan, so I'm really excited to be able to um, take a crack at it. Again, though, it, you know... I mean, the the, the basis of the thing is... Um, I guess it's easy to, to just say fi- sci-fi and automatically, you know, people get excited about it. But what really has gotten me going on it is, is, you know, the characters and what the story is actually about, which is something I'm really excited about and which, you know, we could have a three-hour talk about after <laughs> after this if you want. I want to ask one follow-up to the Tom Cruise question. Um, You're are celebrity you, obsessed, are man. You the, are you the kind of guy who had – this is a really weird celebrity for me to be obsessed with, but it's true. <laughs> uh, are you the kind of guy who has a similar relationship to the idea of Ricky Jay that other people have to the idea of Tom Cruise? Yes, that's a really good analogy, actually. It's a very good analogy. I was a huge, huge Ricky Jay fan um, going back to – I guess it was around – I guess it was like around 99 or 2000. I was, back when we were trying to get Brick made, I was working at the Disney Channel and somebody slipped me a VHS of his show, 52 Assistants, which had been on HBO. And I wore that tape then, like watching it over and over again. And I just kind of fell in love with what he, what he is, you know, what he does and what he, how he presents um, this incredible body of knowledge that he has. And, you know, both as a performer and as a, scholar of all these things that you know i just and a lot of the things in bloom that are ended up on the screen in in bloom are you know obsessions of mine that i feel like i wouldn't have come to if it weren't for ricky jay you know so um and then there was this weird thing where a very good friend of mine from college was his assistant for many years and so there was this bizarre thing because i'm you know i'm I, i will actually you know, I'm I'm the I'm the type where if I'm sitting next to a celebrity or something, I'll probably actually be rude. Like just in a public space, I'll probably be rude to them because I'm trying not to notice. You know, not to like impose on them or notice them or something. So there was this weird thing whenever my friend and I hung out where I never mentioned Ricky and he never mentioned Ricky, but he knew I was a big fan and I knew he was his assistant. <laughs> it was kind of. <laughs> But eventually we, you know, eventually I did get to... You you get could to be, man. you might be concerned that you would say something wrong and he would kill you with a playing card. Precisely, just... Right as outlined in his book, Cards as Weapons. Exactly, precisely. Yeah, they just straight into the head of a deer, you know, just thunk. He throws it harder and faster than any man on the planet. And I've, I've seen him do it. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> Well, Ryan, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on The Sound of Young America. Thanks for having me, man. It was a real pleasure. Ryan Johnson's new movie is The Brothers Bloom. It opens May 15th in New York and Los Angeles, May 22nd in select cities. And uh, if your city wasn't selected, it opens nationwide on May 29th. Thanks again, Ryan. Thanks. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. Please excuse my dog barking in the background. Someone's walking on the roof. Uh, Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our editor is Nick White. You can find us online at the all-new MaximumFun.org. You can always email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. My thanks again to everyone who's donated in the Maximum Fun Drive. And if you haven't and you're downloading this right away, you've still got about 36 hours to do it. We'll be sending out tons of thank you gifts and T-shirts and mustache TVs and all that good stuff 
within a few weeks. So uh, expect to get it in, a, in about a month, maybe six weeks. Um, we'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.